for our sister who took her time this morning to be with us and to play for us. Many of the products that we come to buy, we are accustomed to seeing a label on. Many of us often take notice of these little labels as we look at them. Often they're marketing schemes, uh, something to entice us to buy the product, something maybe perhaps uh, informing us that we need to buy batteries for it to, um, if it's something that's uh, electronic. But one little label that the box often says is some assembly required. Now, for most of us, this doesn't necessarily preclude us from purchasing the product but rather serves as a warning for us that when we get home, there's going to be some work for us to do. There's going to be some activity that we're going to need to do. No big deal. Most of us are confident, I'm sure, in our skills to be able to put together these products. That's why we buy them. But not until we come home and begin to unpack the box. And one of the things that often happens is you might be missing a piece or something like that, that that's necessarily going to happen, and we get frustrated by it. But there is one other thing that often comes along with buying something that requires assembly, and that is that dreaded uh, manual, the manual that uh, helps us to, to understand how to put the product together, the bookshelf or the toy, those dreaded instruction manuals. Most of them, at best, uh, we hope were written by someone that actually had put the product together themselves, and at worst, written by someone who clearly does not have a handle on the English language. And so, because of these bad experiences with instruction manuals, when we get home, what do we often do? Uh, we throw them away. We might give them a cursory look. We might thumb through them. We might get a lay of the land, if you will. But often what we do is we approach it like a puzzle. We lay all the pieces of the puzzle out. And we prop the box up in front of us and we say, I'm just going to put it together by sight. That's how I'm going to do it. And so like a puzzle, we begin to stare at the box and think about how piece A goes with bolt B and, and all the rest. And we hope to assemble the product the way it looks on the box. And many times, as you, I'm sure, are familiar, you get leftover pieces and you wonder, are these pieces supposed to go in this or, or were they extras? We're really not sure. Well, brothers and sisters, as humorous as that is, and as true of a story as that is, for many of us, this does not work when we approach God. Oftentimes when we approach God, we tend to approach God really with the same attitude. Oh, it doesn't really matter how I kind of come to worship or how I approach God. God is loving. He will kind of accept me however He wants. It doesn't really matter. So we place a low priority on the instruction manual, what we call the Bible, we kind of toss it aside and say, you know, I can come to God however I feel or I think is best. We come up with clever and creative ways of expressing ourselves in worship. Much of the bad, this bad theology on worship was really, for us as evangelicals, really birthed out in the 1960s and 70s. And really the fruit of which, of that bad theology, came to really fruitfulness in the so-called worship wars of the 80s and 90s. Many of you will remember those 
times where the church was divided over worship and the kind of music you would sing. Would we sing hymns? Would we sing four-part hymns? Would we sing choruses? Would we sing with a guitar or with a piano? How How would we worship God? And what we were left with in the earliest part of the 21st century, just a decade ago, was a church anemic and tired and hungry for genuine worship. An entire generation grew up in churches splitting over silly things like the style of worship. Whether or not a church saying traditional versus contemporary. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, uh, what does contemporary mean? It's funny that when I often talk to senior adults and they talk about how we need to sing contemporary music, and I say, well, that's wonderful. What particular song do you have in mind? And they pull out a song and they, they open it to, to it and they, they say, this song right here. And I lovingly and patiently point them to the bottom of the page. And right there at the bottom of the page tells you when that song was written. And I guarantee you nine times out of ten that song was written in the 1980s or the early 1990s. Brothers and sisters, that's not contemporary the world we live in. We don't live in the 1980s and the 1990s, right? We live in the iPhone world. We live in the digital world. The things that were going on in the 80s and 90s are not what's going on today. And so what we often call contemporary. And I just wonder, have you ever wondered why so many of the younger generation doesn't come to church? Could it be that they grew up in churches fighting over things they felt were really not worth fighting over? And I tell you, it's so awesome to see an entire new generation of 20 and 30 year olds who have a desire not to sing contemporary songs, but to sing traditional songs. They want to sing four part hymns. They want to sing hymns because not because they're hymns, but because of the words. Because of what is actually being sung in the song. Because what we abandoned for hipper music was was the theology that went along with music. But the point of all of this is is to understand that God doesn't desire creativity in worship, but faithfulness. Consider Aaron, who in the stroke of really genius, his creative genius there on on the shore of Mount Sinai, there on the edge of Mount Sinai, Aaron thought he was doing something right for God. When he fashioned the golden calf, he wasn't creating a new God. He thought that he was worshiping Yahweh in that golden calf. He thought he could worship God in any old way. And you might be reminded of the story and what happened. God, in his anger, about wiped out the entire nation because of that act. Or consider Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus 10, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They thought, hey, you know what? Let's offer this cool fire. God will be impressed with it. God will love it. He will love our good idea of worship. What they thought was a great way to worship God, that fire ended up consuming them and they died. Or considered yet Uzzah, a faithful priest to the Lord who loved God, who loved God's people, but was not faithful to follow God's word. He thought he knew God's word. One day the Israelites were transporting the Ark of the Covenant and God expressly had told them never to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And as they were transporting it, the Ark slipped off the cart and began to fall to the ground. Like so many of us, we would have reached out to try to stop it, to say, no, the Ark will break if it hits the ground. Uzzah reaches out to stop it and what happens to him? He dies instantly. 
because he was commanded not to touch the ark of the Lord. Friends, these stories illustrate clearly that God cares how we worship him. God cares about how his people approach him in worship. He cares about what we do. And in fact, in our worship services, we don't do anything that God has not expressly commanded in Scripture. There's not one part of our service that is not expressly commanded in the New Testament for us to do. The only part of our service that is left to our own uh, thinking, our own wisdom, is, is the accompaniment. That's the only thing that we're commanded not to have. We don't have to have it, but we have it just to help aid in our singing. Every other aspect from our singing, from our praying, to our reading of Scripture, to our preaching, to the ordinances in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, all of those have been commanded by God. Nothing else we do that is not commanded because God cares how He is worshipped. God doesn't leave it to our own creativity or our ingenuity. He doesn't care about how clever you are and how creative you can be in worship. What he cares about is your faithfulness to his word. So how does God desire to be worshipped? Well, for help with this question, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 134. Psalm 134. It's on page 519 on the Pew Bibles. Uh, the black few Bibles, I invite you to just grab that Bible in front. If you don't have your Bible with you, open it to page 519. Look for the big giant number, 134. Uh, it's a short little hint, uh, psalm, um, song. And we're going to consider together in God's Word today this. We're going to think about it. So just leave that open before you. Uh, we're going to look at it. We're going to think about what it means and what it means for us as God's people. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at two psalms. Uh, the song book of the church is the psalms, the Psalter. 150 songs that we can sing together, that we can dwell on together, that we can meditate, that we can read aloud together, that reflect the glories of Christ Jesus as our God and King. Next week, we're going to start a four-part series in the book of Ruth. But today, we're going to consider Psalm 134. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, bless the Lord. All you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Psalm 134 falls within a collection of psalms called the Psalms or the Songs of Ascent. If you look at your Bibles there at the top of that song, you'll see a song of ascent. That, that, that phrase, that sentence is in the original Hebrew language. And if you look around at all the psalms littering the page before you, on the page to the left and on the page to the right, you'll notice that every one of them starts with that phrase, a song of ascent. If you turn over just one more page to the left, to Psalm 120. Psalm 120 uh, begins this collection of psalms in your Bible. So from 120 all the way to 134 is a collection of songs of ascent. Um, so what were these? These were songs that were used by the priest and the congregation of Israel to help them in their worship services. As they would gather in the temple, as they would gather in Jerusalem, many of them would make long voyages, long treks. 
uh, from many miles away, maybe days of journey as they went to Jerusalem to worship, maybe at the Passover or at other times they would gather there in Jerusalem. And they would sing on their way these psalms. The priests, as they were preparing the sacrifices, as they were getting the temple ready, as they were doing their daily tasks, as they were sweeping the temple floor, as they were cleaning the blood off the altar, they would be singing these psalms. They would be singing songs like those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which can never be moved, but abides forever. Or like Psalm 126, when the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Songs that would cause them to reflect on what God had done in their past and what he was doing in their future. Or great psalms that we know so well, like Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like, will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children Peace be upon Israel. What a prayer for you saints this morning that you have been blessed by the Lord if you have seen your children's children. If you have witnessed your grandchildren, you have been blessed by the Lord. And so these psalms were used as a way to encourage worship and encourage God's people to approach God in an appropriate way in worship. And so Psalm 134 invites God's people to worship Him in specific ways. It's a short psalm, but yet it has great meaning. And in this psalm, we see three ways God desires his people to worship him. So we want to think about these three ways we see. Each of these verses gives us a way in which the Lord desires you to worship him. A way he desires you to approach him in your life, in our gatherings together, and in your lives individually. We see in verse 1 that the Lord, uh, first we see that the Lord wants you to worship him. In your service. Second, we see in verse 2, worship the Lord with your prayers. And then third, in verse 3, worship the Lord with your humility. Worship the Lord with your service. Worship the Lord with your prayers. And worship the Lord with your humility. Well, let's consider first in God's word that first verse. Worship the Lord with your service. In verse 1, the psalmist says, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. We see that the, the psalmist there is inviting those, those men who are working in the temple to know two things. To know who they are and to know what they do. The invitation to worship was for, as you see, the servants of the Lord. Uh, these men were most likely Levitical priests who would have taken time regularly, this, their job was to work in the temple. They didn't work any other jobs in the nation of Israel, but at the temple. Their entire lives, from their birth to their death, was spent working in the temple. These priests were given from the people to God for this service. And notice what they're defined as. Notice who they are. They are called servants of the Lord. Servants do what their masters tell them to do, don't they? The tasks they have are not their own. They don't drum up their own task list, their own to-do list. 
Uh, they don't come up with it. No more than you. When you go and work in your job, uh, your employer tells you what to do. Now, unless you're self-employed, then you tell yourself what to do. Uh, but if you are not self-employed this morning, if you work some, for somebody, uh, your employer gives you the tasks that you are going to do. If you don't do those tasks, then you're either disciplined or worse, you're fired. Uh, the tasks were not their own. They didn't come up with them. They didn't create them. They did the work of the Lord. They didn't choose their jobs. They, they didn't sign up to be priests. There wasn't some role in Israel where people could go sign up and say, hey, I want to be a priest. It was particular. They were born into these particular jobs. They were chosen by God to carry out specific roles in their life. They were known, excuse me, they knew from birth to death who they were. They knew who they were. They knew what they were to do. And brothers and sisters, this is true for us. We're to know who we are. We're to know who we are in Christ Jesus. We will never serve the Lord until we understand ourselves to be servants of the Lord. You will never serve the Lord faithfully until you understand who you are in the Lord. That you are a servant of the Lord. When we come into the kingdom of God, we come into the kingdom as servants. We come into the kingdom as His servants. The, the New Testament calls us slaves or bondservants. We must begin by understanding who we are. And I just wondered, have you ever thought that that's your relationship to God, that you are His servant, you are to do what He calls you to do? In Luke 17, 10, Jesus really clarifies the matter in case you were confused. Maybe you weren't sure about this. He clarifies the matters for his disciples. He says, when you have done all that you were commanded to do. So Jesus says, hey, listen, when you've done everything God's commanded to do, everything I've commanded you to do, this is what you are to say. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. See, when we obey God, we're not doing some morally obligation to God, doing something that is praiseworthy. We are merely doing what is our duty. Service defines who, are, who we are. It is our duty. But not only were they to know who they were, we see also in the second half of verse 1, they are to understand what they do. The psalmist says, those who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Uh, these men had a unique task unlike others. They had a unique task that they were to minister all night long in the temple. Their job was to serve there through the watches of the night. While the rest of the nation was asleep, they were busy doing God's work. They were preparing the sacrifices for the next day. They were cleaning the temple. They were praying. They were sacrificing. The temple was open like 7-Eleven. You know, at 7-Eleven, you can go there any hour of the day. You can get you a Slurpee at, you know, 2 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon. Never closes. Never takes a holiday. Neither did the temple. The temple was always open. It never shut down. It never took a break. It never rested. There was always activity going. These men went on. The lights were always on. The candles were always trimmed 24 hours a day. Seven days a week, the servants of the temple would serve the Lord with these various tasks. And friends, they knew this. They knew who they were, and they knew what their job was. They were not confused about it. They didn't question it. They were to serve the Lord. Through long hours and tiring nights, they were to give themselves in the service of God. 
brothers and sisters, and so it is with us. As servants of God, we are to know what we are to do. Servants, by definition, serve. You're not a servant if you don't serve, right? Just like at your place of employment. You can claim to be an employee, but unless you are working for that particular company, right? Someone walked in off the street and grabbed a name badge and put it on and said, Hey, my name's Bill. I work here now. You would say, No, you don't. You don't do anything here until they actually do something. And so it is with us. If we're not serving the Lord, we're not servants of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean here in this passage as we think about night and day and going all night doesn't mean that you know we're to serve the lord all night long you know stay up long nights although there might be a season of our life for that the idea here is that the pervasiveness of our service to christ invades every aspect of evening every waking or sleeping moment do you ever think about the fact that sleep is a service to the lord that your rest is actually a moment where you can trust God, where you can have faith in God. You know, it's funny, we often think in our culture that workaholics, those guys that are up all night, working their butts off, you know, neglecting their families so that they can make a living. You know, we see them kind of celebrated in our culture, the guy that works 60, 70, 80 hours a week. You know, he's a hard worker. He is out there making a name for himself. But you know, that person has a big idolatry problem. When we do not take time to rest, when we do not take time to trust God, do you know something, when we rest, it's an act of faith saying, you know what, the world doesn't need me. I can be asleep right now. I can be asleep right now. I can take a nap this afternoon. I will be. (laughs) I can rest this afternoon. I can trust that this world does not need me because it has him. Rest demonstrates that we need restoration. We need rejuvenation. And friends, we can just look at Jesus as an example. The eternal son of God, all-powerful, all-knowing, had all the strength of God in him. Rested regularly. Slept regularly. He wasn't lazy but he demonstrated dependence on God. And so as Christians, we are about the service of the Lord. Regularly in the New Testament, Christians are defined as servants. We are called servants of the Lord. Romans 1.1, for example, in, in the beginning of the letter, Paul says, Paul and a servant of Christ Jesus. Or in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Or James, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, or consider Peter in 2 Second Peter, First Peter 2.13, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Christians are servants of Christ Jesus. That's who we are. We serve the Lord Jesus. And service is an act of worship. You know, we often reduce worship to singing or to what occurs here. But what happens here is a reflection of what should be happening in every day of our lives. We worship the Lord by serving Him. And Paul makes this so clear in Romans 12. We don't have time this morning to go there, but in Romans 12, Paul makes this clear statement that our service to the Lord, our serving the Lord and others, is our spiritual act of worship. That our worship of the Lord is actually us serving others. Brothers and sisters, I just wonder, how do you give your time to the Lord? 
How do you give your time week in and week out? How do you give your time and talents and energy to the bride of Christ? This morning I was having a conversation with a sister and I was sharing with her how, how, how often uh, those who skip church, who are tempted to skip church, that may be you this morning, maybe you thought like, you know, I think about just skipping out, weather's going to be nice, and then you realize how humid it was and it wasn't so nice, and so you thought, you know, I'm just going to come in the air conditioning then. Right, you know, so often we, we, we wake up or maybe Saturday night we decide, you know, I'm not going to go to church, but, you know, as Christians, one of the things that we miss out the most, not only are we disobeying God when we skip church, the gathering, I don't mean Sunday, that ain't, Sunday school is not church. Okay, we've we dealt with that a few weeks ago. This is church um, when the church is gathered. So you ever consider when you're not here, two things happen. One, someone else is not able to serve you and you aren't able to serve others. Consider that you miss out on the opportunity to serve someone. To love on someone. To, to fulfill all those one another passages that we're exhorted to in the New Testament. You miss out on that. You don't get to give yourself to others. But also you're not able to receive the service. We're not able to serve you. We're not able to shepherd you. I'm not able to pastor you and to love you and to, and to shepherd you if you're not here. Can't shepherd sheep that are off wandering around. So how are you serving the body of Christ this week? How, how would you give yourself to service this week? Brothers and sisters, God desires that you worship him through your service. Let's consider secondly here uh, in verse 2. Worship the Lord with your prayers. Worship the Lord with your prayers. Prayer should be like the air we breathe. Without air, you're going to die. Without breath, you're dead. You're no longer alive. And so it be with prayer. Without prayer, we are dead spiritually. And true worshipers of God, true worshipers will worship the Lord with prayer. Brothers and sisters, throughout our worship service is littered with prayer. We give over 15 minutes of our time or more each week to prayer. Sadly, across America in many evangelical churches, prayer takes a back seat to the show that happens on the stage. What you might find, and I, I hear it from many of you saints when you're traveling, you visit other churches, and, and you comment on the fact that the only prayer I heard was the 30-second prayer the pastor gave before or after his sermon. That was it. Or that frail deacon after at the end of the service. That was it. That was it. Brothers and sisters, what we see in this passage is that prayer is worship. So I want to really note two things here about prayer. Honor him with your actions and honor him with your words. We see here in verse 2, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Now we find the strains lifting up of hands to the holy place there. They, they're invited in this song for the servants of the Lord, these priests that are ministering, not to be just down, head down with their tasks, distracted with their work, but to rather have their hearts and affections where? Toward the holy place. The holy of holies, that place that they're ministering in. That place, the Holy of Holies, is that place where God's presence was symbolized. God wasn't literally there. It was a symbol of God's presence with his people. God lives in heaven, he says. You know, that's my footstool. I don't really live there. I just show up from time to time. It was a symbol of his presence, his abiding presence with his people. And so they were to lift hands as, a, as an outward display of their dependence upon God to supply their need. 
they were pointing, if you will, uh, to the place where they got their bread. Imagine a beggar comes up to him and says, hey, where do I get bread? Where do I get my supplies? That's where you get it from right there in the Holy of Holies. That's where we get all of our supply from. Now, while we don't lift our hands to a particular place on earth, we do lift our hearts to the Lord in prayer. What we see here is a symbol of, of prayer. That's what they were doing here. And now, friends, I know I'm, I'm talking to a, a group of Baptists who get a little, little sketchy, a little leery of people raising their hands in church, a little nervous when they see people raising hands. But raising hands is a biblical thing, all right, despite what you, your mama told you or whatever. Uh, raising hands is okay. But what we're doing in raising hands in prayer is we are saying that our strength does not come from us. In lifted hands, our, our palms are open and they are away from us. They're not like, he, it's all about me. It's what I have. It's about what he's going to give me. It's a recognition that our only source, our only stockpile is in God alone. I'm not saying you have to raise your hands in worship. That's not what I'm saying. But we have to lift our voices in prayer. We are to honor Him with our words. We have to open our mouths. Do you ever notice how verbal the Christian life is? Let me compare that with other world religions. Buddhism, confession, Eucharist. Consider how often Eastern meditation is about silence and solitude, quietness, but how much the Christian life is about vocal, about us opening our mouths. I heard a preacher yesterday uh, talking about how there's just something powerful when he reads the Word of God aloud to himself. There is something powerful about when you read aloud or you pray aloud. So I invite you this week as you're praying to vocalize with your heart but with your lips. And we see that there in verse 2. Bless the Lord. The blessing of the Lord was, was a praise of the Lord. That's a word that we use synonymously with praising. To bless the Lord means that you are vocalizing your dependence on God in prayer. You are saying that God I have nothing apart from you. Everything I have has come from you. And this is what we are doing in prayer. We are vocalizing our dependence. So I just wonder, what are some words that you can say that will honor the Lord? How in your life can you, can you honor Him to show trust in your words? Do those around you know where your supply comes from by the words you speak? Are you constantly exhorting others and telling them that I would have nothing apart from Jesus Christ? Do your prayers demonstrate total dependence upon God? Do you praise Him as a God who can answer prayer? In faith, do you trust? Friends, the tragic reality is the lack of prayer in my life and in your life, demonstrates that we are not that dependent on God in our lives. Consider how much time you spent on social media or spent 
reading a newspaper or a magazine this week compared to how much you spent reading God's word and praying. My lack of prayer, your lack of prayer, is a reflection of a heart not dependent upon God, but independent of God. And brothers and sisters, we must carve out regular times in our lives where we seek God in prayer. Where we lift His name high in prayer. Where our mouths are loosed. Where we look strange to those around us. What are they going on about? They're going on about worship of their God. But it begins with an intentional time of you carving time out. Look, prayer isn't going to happen. You're not going to fall into prayer. Trust me, you're not going to wake up in your busy day. I know most of you here are, are, are really, you're maxed out. You are burdened out. There's not minutes in your day that you can spare. And so it has to be intentional. It has to be something where you say, I'm going to spend X amount of time at this particular time of the day in prayer, and nobody else can have that time, not even me. That's where it begins. If you are not intentional, it will never happen. If you're not intentional in evangelism, it won't happen. If you're not intentional in Bible reading, it won't happen. Intentionality is the key to success, but also accountability. You have to have people in your lives, brothers and sisters, united in covenant together, in covenant membership, where we hold each other accountable in prayer. Brothers and sisters, we must give our sides to this. Consider this. Praying people are well-supplied people. A praying congregation is a well-supplied congregation. I don't mean financially, although I do mean that. Much more than that. We must go to the Lord and receive the supply he gives. In his institutes, Calvin, John Calvin calls prayer the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. Brothers, you cannot receive the benefits from the throne of God. You cannot be blessed by God if you do not ask for it. Jesus often says, and in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7 says, you do not have because you don't ask. But if you ask, you would receive. So ask, and you will receive. So may we daily go to receive these rich blessings. And may God open our spiritual eyes to appreciate and appropriate His great glory in our lives. Prayer is a central part of our ongoing worship of God. He desires you to worship Him in your prayers. Let's look at this third and final point. Promise it'll be quick. You've kind of nodded off. This might be a time for you to wake up. Pay attention again. Worship the Lord with your humility. Worship the Lord with your humility. Friends, pride reveals our self-reliance rather than reliance on God. Humility isn't weakness. Humility doesn't mean that you're frail and you're a weakling. But it means that you're trusting in someone greater than you. And we honor God most when we rest in Him in our humility. When we say that we must trust in the Lord. And so in this last verse, we see the singers invite these workers, these servants of the Lord, to worship the Lord. By acknowledging him as their creator and their king. 
Acknowledge Him as your Creator. In worship, acknowledge Him as your Creator. We're told there, may the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. Our blessings comes from the Creator. The Bible again and again reveals to us that the Lord is the creator of the cosmos. That he shaped us and formed us. That he threw the stars into the sky. What a tragedy it is that many of us who live in metropolitan areas are often, we can't see the beauty of the stars in the sky as a reminder, not only God's power and might, but of his creation. And he made us in his image. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the one for whom and through whom all things were created. By the word of his power, God spoke into existence this creation. and He formed each one of us in his image. That is, we reflect his character, his communicable attributes. Many of us will be celebrating our nation's Independence Day this Tuesday. What a privilege it is to do that. But many of us also will be celebrating our independence from God. Because the Bible tells us that though we were created in the image of God and created to live in relationship and accountability to God, we were not created independent from God. But just like Adam and Eve, the Bible says that, that because of sin, we have been separated from God. That we've ruined that relationship that God had with us. We didn't listen to God. Instead, we listened to ourselves. We rejected God in His way. We said, you know what? I'm going to do things my way. I know what's best. We've set ourselves in, up, in opposition to God. We oppose God. We declared autonomy from God. We don't want God. We declared our independence from God. And the Bible is clear. Because of that, we are con condemned eternally in our sin. God and his amazing love for us sent this king, Jesus Christ, who was not only fully man, but also fully God. He lived a perfect life in obedience to his father, the life you and I should have lived. Where we struggle to put God first, where we struggle in worship, he worshiped the father perfectly. He followed the father perfectly. He then died, crucified as a sacrifice the place that you and I should have been in. He died so that you could be forgiven. God then raised him from the dead for our justification, we read in the Bible, so that all those who would ever repent of their sins and trust in him would be saved. And friends, this is that Christian gospel that I invite you to believe in this morning. I invite you to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is the only way that you can see him as your creator and king. That's the only way that you can acknowledge him today. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ this morning, your obedience is your acknowledgement of Him as your Creator. We acknowledge Him as our Creator when we obey Him. In everyday life, you are signaling to others who you think created you by your obedience to God. Or by that matter, your disobedience to God. And finally, we see here that we are invited to acknowledge Him as your King. The singers call the servants to seek the Lord as the king. He says, may the Lord bless you from Zion. Now Zion is that, is that wonderful 
sort of end times beautiful word that encapsulates so much of the Old Testament we don't have time to look at. But Zion was that place where God would finally and fully restore the world. Where, Where leadership would be put right and the Davidic king would ascend that throne. And acknowledging him as king means that you are trusting him for protection and supply. It means that the king would protect the people and provide the economic stability in their lives. That's what it means for God to be king of your life. And and all throughout the Old Testament, we are told that God will be king of his people. And in Revelation, we see a, a culmination of that when Christ Jesus, in Revelation 14 is there with 144,000, which is a symbolic number of people from all of eternity who have trusted in Christ. And there they are standing with the king on Mount Zion. And God has restored the nations and redeemed the earth for his glory. Brothers and sisters, we are invited in this psalm to acknowledge God as king by submitting to him in our lives. Giving allegiance to him as our master. Jesus makes clear in Matthew 10.38 that those who are to follow him must swear ultimate allegiance to him and to no one else. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now you may, name, you may claim the name of Christ today. You may have claimed the name of Jesus for, for decades. But if you are not following Jesus and his word, you are not a Christian. You can call yourself that. You can dress yourself up like that. But brothers and sisters, it is only a life lived in regular repentance and submission to Him that is living like Jesus is our King. J.C. Ryle helps us here when he writes, Let us watch against pride in every shape. Pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride of our own goodness. Nothing is so likely to keep a person out of heaven and prevent them from seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. Let us pray for and cultivate humility. Let us seek to know ourselves correctly and to find out our place in the sight of a holy God. Brothers and sisters, if we do not approach God in in humility, if we do not come to Him with a humble heart before the Lord, we are not truly worshiping Him. So I ask, will you begin to worship the Lord with your service? Will you worship Him in that way? You must know that as a Christian, you're a servant of God. That you are a servant who serves God. That you're to do what He says, not what you think is best. You're to do the tasks He's given you. And do them only. Be known by others as a servant of the Lord. Let that be what people know you for. When we gather together, we know you as a servant of the Lord. Will you worship the Lord with your prayers? Will you carve out that time in your life and in your heart for prayer as a, as a, as a display of your dependence upon God? Honor Him with your actions and with your words. And finally, will you worship the Lord with humi- humility? Will you give yourself in humble service to Him, acknowledging Him as your Creator, the one who ultimately you're accountable to? You're not the master of your own ship. Jesus is. He is the king whom you serve. Brothers and sisters, may we worship our God and King Jesus Christ for his glory and our eternal good. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we give praise and glory to you. For you have redeemed us from eternity past. You have called us out of darkness into your glorious light. 
not because we were worthy, not because of something in us, but because of your eternal purposes in election. You have called your people, you have redeemed us for your glory, to be your servants and to eternally stand before your throne, giving you praise and glory and adoration. And my prayer this morning is that these saints would do that. That they would be about worshiping you in their service. That they would devote themselves to prayer. That, Lord, that they would give themselves in humility and no longer think themselves something special, but to think that they are a new creation in Christ Jesus, created for good works. May that be so in our lives together for your glory and our eternal good. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we heard in